Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Today we have as our guest Whitney Aragaki, a science and national board certified teacher at Waiakea High School on Hawaii Island. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Whitney, we, we kind of changed our format as we went into semester two of season one. Um, and we made it a little bit more formal in terms of the number of questions that we ask and the way that the questions are asked. So it's called 10 questions with. So today it's gonna be 10 questions with Whitney. So we're gonna jump right into question number one. So Whitney, in a personal statement, which I loved, by the way, you wrote the following, and I quote, I believe that students learn more holistically when their learning is immersed in cultural context and that they feel a responsibility to learn and produce meaningful artifacts of knowledge in their efforts to support their communities. So my question is, what do you mean by, quote unquote, learn more holistically? And why is it so important for them to produce meaningful artifacts of knowledge? What I mean by learn more holistically is that we have to break down the silos of content structures. You know, it's not just math class, English class, even an elective or I, um, ITE classes or anything like that. It's like we have to learn together and teachers need to work together so students can see that learning happens in all contexts. Wherever they get their funds of knowledge, whether it's from parents, community, teachers, even their own environment and the way that our natural world speaks to us, we have to understand that content comes from everywhere. So they learn holistically that way in my classes. And what do I mean by artifacts? Well, it's all about the real world connections. Is there real world problems that we need to address and solve? And students are fully capable of identifying these problems and finding solution spaces for them. You know, over the years since I graduated from high school in 1976, I've continued to look back at that experience, the high school experience for me. I was at Punahou School. And I realized over the years that I had no artifacts of learning other than a bunch of grade reports that I found in a drawer one time. And by the way, I was a terrible student, at least by those standards, like C-level student. But there were two projects that I was asked to do way back in high school, twice. Um, and both projects, the artifacts are still there, and I'm so proud of them, those two. 
So that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Definitely. And if I were to flash back to my own high school experience, it's not necessarily the content that I learned, but the experiences that I took from it that made it relevant and meaningful to me. As a science fair student, I was really big into studying the Kolea, which is the Pacific Golden Plover. And it was really awesome by the time I was a 12th grader that I was one of the top experts in the state about it, working with my mentors and being able to answer real questions about how climate change is affecting them on the islands as well as in Alaska. And so that, that experience, while I did not continue that at any time in my biology career or in teaching, it was that experience of being able to feel that I was empowered to make a difference in some kind of context. What were the skills and habits and dispositions that you developed as a result of that? Definitely speaking to adults because I had to go to conferences and that's the first time that I had to present myself as as much as I could consider a content expert and I had to be able to, I guess, how would I say this? I had to talk with people that I would have never talked to and make people believe in what I believed in. And also, you know, I was in science fair. I competed in the science fair, and it was not that I was solving the world's problem spaces of cancer or big ideas that we had, which is some orchid diseases and things like that. But it was Hmm. that it was meaningful to me and it was meaningful for me to see the kolea out in my backyard every day, and that was relevant. And being able to then fly to Alaska, be by myself, without my parents, as a 13-year-old even, be by my parents, be without my parents in Alaska, studying the kolea, doing that real research out on the tundra, that was important to me. That was an artifact that I will take with me forever. Wow, and I'm that's so amazing. indebted to my mentors. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Awesome. So perfect segue into question number two. Okay. So you have aspirations uh, in the next 20 years to contextualize science and math education and ground both in uh, Western and indigenous ways of of knowing. So since 2016, when Ted Dintersmith uh, first came to Hawaii, he said over and over again, over 12 visits to this state, what makes education so potentially unique in this state is place and culture. So what does a science or math classroom that is contextualized in both Western and indigenous ways of knowing look and sound and feel like? If I I walked into your classrooms, like what would I experience? Well, I can't necessarily say what you would experience, but what I hope you experience is that you would feel that it's an ohana. We are one family, we are there to help each other, learn from each other, and to also feel that we are empowered to help the environment. That we have to be connected to our environment. We have to put our feet in the earth. We have to get our hands in the mulch. We have to be outside. You know, it's not that as much as in this technological world, we can bring anywhere into our classroom. We can go to Greece, we can go to Rome, we can go to Japan, but it's about getting out instead. And that mental shift of get your face out of a screen and get into the earth is what I try to promote for my students. Also, what <clears throat> excuse me, also what's really important is the health aspect. As a biology teacher, this is one of the last times I realized in my students' educational experiences that they will have someone talking to them directly about wellness. 
you know, how do you control your blood pressure? How do you talk about diabetes? How do you talk about cancer before you go to a doctor's office and feel typically disempowered by that experience? So if we are now empowering our students, knowing what they're up against, you know, the indigenous pressures, or the pressures that indigenous people face more so, how do we empower them to take control of their wellness as well as their kuleana to the environment? I totally know what you're talking about. This morning, the alarms were going off in the studio, and my blood pressure went through the roof, and I had to figure out how to bring it back down again. <laughs> so um, I, I totally get what you're talking about. So I also, I also noticed, connected to the same question, I noticed in your school's website um, that you guys do something called SLA, Smaller Learning Academy. SLCs, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, um, so what's the connection to that? Like, what's the meaning of the smaller learning environment to you? SLCs um, are, are the way that we live our life at Waikia High School. You know, we believe in them, we promote them, and it's all about having students find their career pathways so that they can feel a success in the way that we have set up our economies in Hawaii. And we want our students to feel successful, and in doing so, we also want them to find what they're not interested in. And so whether a student enters the health academy and says, well, by 12th grade, I don't want to be a nurse that I thought I want to be. I actually would like to be a teacher. We have saved them that much more money in pursuing that nursing degree program because we've offered them experiences that are meaningful and that are relevant, such as CPR training or um, I think we're going to start investigating the CNA programs, you know, giving them the that novel experience, the same thing that we do in our public services academy, that we we put kids out there in the environment. And maybe they thought they are going to save the world, but they're going to save it from a lab instead. And that's okay, too. We want our kids to feel that they've had meaningful experiences for which to make best choices going into college and career. I also noticed that your students created an app uh, that would help visitors have a particular experience when they visited Hawaii Island. What was that? Um, that was the Samsung Solve for Tomorrow competition. We didn't actually go through the entire process because we didn't make it to the next rounds of judging, but it was a great thought process because a student of mine earlier had created an app that was a walking tour of Hilo, um, downtown Hilo. And it was a beautiful app, and he did a lot of things where if you walked really close to the Naha Stone, it would pop up that this is the Naha Stone and explain the wow. cultural significance of that. And also don't touch it. You know, and, and that kind of conversation started happening in class where my students, some of whose parents were first responders, some of whose parents were scientists, computer scientists, and so forth, were saying that there needs to be more done to educate our tourists and our kama'aina alike as to how to best engage with our community and our environment. So they came up with the idea, and every year we apply for this Samsung Self for Tomorrow competition with the strengths and intelligences of what the students bring to the table that year. Mm -hmm. So this year was that app. Wow, that's fantastic. And such a historical element to that because you have to actually do the research about all the places that you're putting into the app, right? Definitely. So, so we had a student that was designated as cultural resources. So all she did was search up cultural resources and then talk to cultural experts wow. as to how to engage. We had a student that was doing science here research on rapid ohia death. So they were already the expert on how to not spread 
rod around. And also we had a student that was focusing on microplastics. So she was really interested in how to engage conversations about ocean acidification and the way that we recycle plastics in our community. Wow, you're making me want to go back to high school. <laughs> so Whitney, here's question number three. Um, in your personal statement, you talk extensively and repeatedly about quote unquote teacher empowerment and about regaining control over curricula and about teachers as the source of education innovation. And reading between the lines, it seems clear that we, for decades, disempowered teachers and effectively told them what to do and how to teach. So my question is, why is empowerment so important to you? And what does a learning space facilitated and guided by an empowered teacher look and sound like? I think it's the same feeling, I guess, even as a parent. If you don't feel like you're an empowered parent in your own child's space, you're not really giving them your best self. And so as a teacher, these are all my children. And if I'm not in that place of feeling like I'm, the, I'm an expert that I can provide them some kind of context to learn, then I'm not giving them my best self. Of course, I do recognize that I am not their one fund of knowledge that there are many and that's why we need to uplift our entire communities to feel that they have that responsibility, that kuleana back to our kids to uplift our community. So when I come into that classroom of an empowered teacher, I'm noticing that the teacher is not there as that font of knowledge, but is actually serving more as a guide, as a mentor, as a coach, as a sponsor. What's, what's that like for kids? If it's a brand new learning environment, it's weird. They wonder why do I stand in the back of the class or why do I sit on a table while addressing the group? Mm -hmm. But really it's about me taking that step back. I'm not the sage on the stage. I'm not the purveyor of all things, but I'm there to hear their voices. And that's why I love being in a co-teaching environment because there are two teachers in the classroom, especially in inclusive settings where Sometimes I can take a step back and just listen to individual conversations and then key in on that one kid who said something that never has that platform to talk in other situations, but now is elevated by my hearing of it and then I can share it to the class. Or my co-teacher does the same thing and she can go around the room, listen in, read their writings and share out. I'm, I'm super interested in co-teaching because I did it myself at the high school level teaching history. Um, it's a pretty amazing experience to co-teach with somebody. How did you come together into the co-teaching kind of moment? Like how did that first happen for you? And what are some of the ways that you and a co-teacher have to work it out together to, to be co-teachers? For sure. My co-teacher and I have been together for eight years. I've been at the school for nearly nine, almost 10 years at this point. And we were kind of thrown together that, oh, you're a content teacher, you're a SPED teacher, move forward together. Mm -hmm. And our relationship has evolved, grown, changed many, many times over since that. And I, I think our proudest achievement is that when we go into a classroom, in any classroom, we, no one knows who the SPED teacher is. And no one, well, I hope they know I'm a content teacher, but they shouldn't know that I'm only teaching content or anything like that. I, they see us as equals. We've had to work through the good cop, bad cop situations mm -hmm. in both scenarios. We've had to figure out like what is, sometimes I would want to teach a content topic and she says, 
what is that for? Who are you serving at this point? Are you serving yourself just because you love it so much? Mm. And sometimes the answer is yes. Yes, I love it so much that I want to teach it. Or sometimes the answer is no, we don't have to go there. We have to make sure that our kids understand the holistic topics. And that is good feedback to have every day. So you sort of service check and balance entirely with each other. Mm -hmm. That's very, very cool. So slight side tangent here with question number four. Um, after you completed your undergraduate work at Swarthmore College um, in Pennsylvania, you felt a calling to return to Hilo. Um, you said that it was as if you were meant to support your community through teaching. So why? What makes Hilo so special? What is it that makes Hilo that special place of learning that you wanted to return to? First off, I'm a graduate of Waikia High School. So I'm teaching at the school that I graduated from. In addition, my mom was my teacher at Waikia High School. It is a tradition and a generational kuleana to serve the community of Hilo. And I think that in my experiences as a Waikia Complex student, my community uplifted me so much and they supported me to, to venture out and say, go, go Whitney, go, go learn something. But the importance is to bring it back and to help your community. You're not just going away to go away, to get off the island, to do something, because that's a perspective that many students have, unfortunately. And I think that it is my charge now to change that perspective in my own students. I teach a lot of advanced placement students, and they want to go away. And that's great, and I, I support them entirely. But I ask them, how are they going to bring that knowledge home? Mm. So let's say, Whitney, that you that your school has a particular sort of schedule and that each one day of the week, one of the five days of instruction each week, you can take a cohort of students out into the Hilo community or nearby um, on a learning walk, that they're gonna, you're gonna go and do something very intentional in terms of learning um, and that you've got all the time that you need. I know that sounds crazy, right? That can never happen, but let's say that you do. Specifically, where would you take them outside of the school and what would you go to do? It's a great question. I mean, I think that there's two, two sides to this perspective that I think it's important that we keep them on campus and we keep them very close to their watershed because they have to know the mo'olelo of their own Waiakea watershed. And that's important. But I also want to take them I, well, my favorite, my favorite field trip is to take them up to the Kipuka on saddle and to take them to listen to the Hawaiian honey creepers, mm. to take them into a place that they pass so often when they drive from Hilo to Kona to go to Costco, and they don't stop to realize the beauty that is surrounds them and that they are privy to that many people do not have in this world. Mm -hmm. So I love that field trip more than anything, and I, I wish I could do it more. It sounds like a listening trip. Yes. You're, you're out in nature and you're listening to what nature is telling it's you. It's extremely meditative. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just great to ground yourself in the natural environment. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's awesome. I would love to go on that trip. I love that side of the island. There's so much happening over there. If you just start looking, right? Yes. That's very cool. So question number five. I've been thinking about four years, Whitney, of a Bear with me here. This is long um, sort of um, being born in my brain about what we could actually do here in Hawaii. So I've been thinking about a multitude, a host 
a legion of innovative, imaginative, creative educators, all working to professionally develop and support each other across the state. I'm not talking so much about education conferences that are drive-by, but more about peer-to-peer capacity building across all islands, which centers innovation not in an external expert at a conference, but in daily coaching and guiding and mentoring via professional learning community. So my question is, how do we achieve this goal here in Hawaii? How do we get this legion of peer-to-peer development that's going on? And in a way, I'm sort of asking, like, how do we get more teachers like you? And how do we get more relationships like you have with other teachers? Like, chart us a, a course towards that North Star. Well, the way that I did it was that I stopped waiting for someone else to do it for me. And first thing this year, I'm implementing my first school-wide professional development three-credit course for my teachers. It's meant to be an induction and mentoring beginning teacher new to our school, Mm -hmm. but it's teaching them the strategies that we we value at Waiakea High School. So it's a it's a school-based PD. And it's entirely voluntary for the teachers as well as myself. And it's free of charge. But I think that what I've noticed in my tenure at the school is that we have so many initiatives. We're a large school. We and the way that you enact it, you engage in Waikiki High School is that you don't stand out when you're doing great. You stand out if you're not doing great. Mm. Because we have so many great teachers pushing for initiatives. But at the same time, that also leaves our new teachers kind of behind. That if no one's there to support, facilitate, teach them what the history of the school and the history of the strategies that we know, then we're not supporting our teachers to be best for their students. So I created that first professional development. Next year, I just wrote another course for integrating digital, applied digital skills with HA so that we can bring in Naho Pena Ao with Google. Which is a Hawaiian framework. For those in the audience, in our radio audience, who don't know what that is, what is that? Naho Pena Ao is a framework in which it teaches students to be the, them, their best selves as individuals participating in a community in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And so this is what's happening on your campus. How do we do this across the state? How have you connected with other educators across the state in a way that you've actually professionally developed yourself and they've developed because of you? A lot of conversations are organic that, what, hey, what are you doing here? How can I implement that at the school? But also, quite honestly, we need to start breaking down some barriers at higher levels that prohibit this kind of innovation from moving. You know, it took me three months to get this professional development course written and approved. And that's too long Mm because teachers don't have that time because teachers are the experts in what they need to be professionally developed on. So if you're going to limit that and you're going to take us away from our classroom so that we can have three months to write a professional development course, then Mm -hmm. you are taking away opportunities from students. So we need to break down barriers Mm -hmm. at higher levels. That's awesome. Okay, so hey, everybody, stay with us. After a short break, we will come back with more questions for Whitney Aragaki. Stay with us.
What could your school do with $25,000? Hawaii Public School teachers apply for the Education Innovation Grant from Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation to make your big idea a reality. The Education Innovation Grant fosters unique, innovative learning experiences benefiting teachers, students, and the greater community. The deadline to apply is May 30th. One Oahu winner and one neighbor island winner will be announced in October. To apply, go to FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Toy and Amber from Entre Ed Talk. We are so excited to uplift this cool new podcast coming to you from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What school could be in Hawaii? As always, we're super excited to support innovation and education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of these incredible educators on our own podcast, Entre Ed Talk. If you're looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators from across the world, join us as we share their journey and insight. Be sure to check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Entre Ed Talk and like, subscribe, and drop us a review today. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Raccoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of EdTech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page and scroll down to EdTech. We'll see you there. Hey everybody, we're back. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon, and we're back with Whitney Aragaki from Waikia High School. So Whitney, we're on to question number six. So sorry, this one has a little bit of a preamble to it. It'll take me a minute. Um, your resume lists you as a new warrior PLC teacher leader, which means you create professional learning communities, AKA PLCs, to support induction and mentoring initiatives at Waikia High School. You lead monthly sessions to guide and support new initiatives and provide opportunities to share collective experiences in the classroom. I want to ask you about how innovation uh, in education, by which I generally mean student-driven learning, spreads in schools. So what conditions, and you were kind of talking about this in the last question, but what, this is more specific to conditions, like what conditions need to be in play for education innovation to spread at a school, on a campus, outside of a campus, and even across public, private, and charter schools in a state? I know it's a big question. That is a big question. I have to always shout out to my early adopters, right, that it can't just be one person with a wild idea by themselves charging through, but it's, it's that collective of individuals who say, that's a great idea, let's run with it, I'll help you, I'll support you. And whether it's teachers, it's support staff, it's administrators, it can be anyone who just says, I believe in this, I believe that we can support our community and let's go do it. And hopefully that spark will ignite across the school, across the complex, and again, the state. But what are the conditions? What are the conditions that have right. to happen? I really, it, it comes back to teacher autonomy. Mm -hmm. It comes back to teachers feeling empowered to make those conditions happen for themselves and to ask for those conditions or just take a hold of it. But 
in my perspective. I try to ask as much as I can that, is this okay? And my administrator at least says, yes, mm-hmm. it can be okay. Don't do anything silly. Make it good. Mm-hmm. And that trust is important. And I appreciate the trust that our administrators have in us. So your administrator really just needs to tell you or any person who's wanting to give an idea a go to think it through carefully to make sure that your liabilities are covered, um, but go for it. And mm-hmm. that if you fail, you fail forward and that together you'll, you'll learn. For um, sure. I, I think that he often says no one goes without. Mm-hmm. No one at YIKO goes without. And that's an important message. Sometimes he's talking about fiscally, but no one goes without in the sense of if you need the support, ask for it and you will receive it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't say anything and you spiral, that's, that's an issue and that's where that needs to be corrected. Mm-hmm. We cannot just sit in our, in our teacher workrooms or anything and complain or bemoan things. We have to go out and seek it ourselves. So one of the clear messages that you seem to be delivering to any educator who wants to give something a go is go for it, make sure that you have the backing of your administration. But as you go for it, if it starts to go off the rails, talk to somebody, like have, have a community that can support you. As it, don't, don't let it spiral alone, right? Is that, is that am yes. I right about that? Entirely. And that's what my early adopters do for me. Mm-hmm. That sometimes I do start spiraling. I say, well, this can't happen. Or, and they're like, why not? Why can't it happen? What, what supports do you need? Mm. And if I can identify those supports, then that is an actualized goal that we can do together. If I can't identify that, then it's just a shot in the dark. But there I've, has to be some parameters. I've had a couple of educators on this podcast series who've talked about really spectacular failures right out of the gate where they, they tried to construct something and it just went south. Have you ever – but then they learned, right? And they, they grew from it remarkably. I mean, it just like hugest, the biggest learning experiences. Have you ever had something like that happen? I think that the biggest experiences for me was when I walked into a leadership role. And I said, I can do this as a very young teacher. I'm going to lead, and it it was my um, career academy. I'm going to lead this academy. It's going to be great. I'm going to do that. I see the vision. Let's go. And that was one of my biggest failures is that I didn't get a group to say, Hmm. we see the vision too. And so it it took me, I I was in a leadership position for four years, and we never got to that national career certification that we aimed for. Mm -hmm. And it was only until I took a step back and was able to see, like, let someone else lead, but always support that we were able to get into that that space where right. we needed to be so I could support others on the same level that they were at right. versus top down. Right. Awesome lesson learned about bringing together a group of people to do to help you do what you want to do. So, okay, so question number seven, Whitney. Um, recently, I attended the 2020 East Meets West Conference, which is put on by Blue Startups. Um, here in Honolulu, and it gathers entrepreneurs and startups and venture people, uh, folks from all over the Pacific Rim. And at a panel on the future of work, a number of panelists, including a guy named Kyle Corbett of the VC Startup School and Liz uh, Rodewald of Instant Teams, talked about things like, quote unquote, distributed models of work, meaning folks working on a project from places all over the world. 
And they also talked about commando team building and virtual reality workspace teams. So I'm listening to these people and I got really concerned. What do we need to do in K-12 schools to get kids ready to participate in these types of 21st century workspaces? And it can't be sitting in rows of desks. We, I know we agree on that. No, I can't. Um, one of the greatest experiences that I've had with students is that I taught AP Seminar a few years ago, and I'm going to take it back next year. Um, we had students write, research a topic as a team, write an individual paper, and then write a team paper and do a team presentation at an AP level in which College Board was grading. And... Writing a team paper is probably the hardest thing for a child to do. I can only imagine. I mean, and these are high achievers, and they all, most of them are high achievers. But um, I, I think that that is, that's one of the biggest things that I wish College Board didn't take that one away because it was really hard to grade. But team papers are huge because you don't have to only look at perspectives, lenses, word count, but you have to look at style and flow and voice and those are all things that as communicators of the 21st century that's where students need to be at it's not just executing a task once and done but it's it's working together melding as a team but then creating an artifact that's not just a powerpoint presentation but an actual body of literature that you are going to present to the world so once you've been through an experience like that as a student working from you know that you happen to be living in South Korea and working on a project that, you know, whose home is, you know, in California, that's not a big deal. You know how to work together as a team and you know how to use the technologies available to do that. Mm -hmm. That's part of what you were trying to achieve. Yep, that's part of it. And also it's that that anxiety of watching someone type on a Google Doc while you have no power over it. <laughs> right. That's that's a big thing yeah. for both as a teacher and as students working together. I have a story. I was teaching at La Pietra, Hawaii School for Girls. Um, I remember very clearly the moment that Google Docs arrived. And I thought, wow, Shazam, I can do some things with this. So my US history students, I said, I made a proposal to them. I said, let's rewrite the, the Bill of Rights together into a modern Bill of Rights. And we'll do it together in a Google Doc. And I didn't even know how Google Docs worked at that point. And what chaos that was as they tried to figure out, like, how do we do this? And But in effect, they were back in Philadelphia working together to write these Bill of Rights. And that sounds like kind of the experience that you took kids Definitely. through. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So question number eight. Um, so, wow, I read your resume, and I found a long list of awards and recognitions with names like Google and Texaco and Samsung and Fishman Foundation and McInerney Foundation. So let's talk about two to three of these uh, meaning, meaningful moments you were most proud of when you were recognized for empowering students, developing student agency, elevating student voice, and student-driven learning. Like, what are a couple things out of that that you're, like, super proud of? I think I'm most proud of the accomplishments that we receive when it's students leading, that it's not just me, it's not just my accomplishment or accolade. So for example, is the Samsung Solve for Tomorrow competition. While we never get state winner, it's watching the students organically find a problem space in their community and then seek to address it. My students, for lack of a better word, are, word, are very privileged. 
You know, they live in the town of Hilo. It's beautiful. It's comfortable. It's not too urban. It's not too rural. But they have to seek out what that problem space is. And we've had some interesting ideas come up, not just the app of that, but once they create, they tried to create a Fitbit for Alzheimer's patients wow. to help caregivers so that they could find them and then they would know, they could sleep at night knowing that they could track their loved ones and they would know when they woke up at night. Wow. So those are kind of some fun projects that we came up with. And it's all because of the intelligences that the students bring to the table. But also the reason, and I, the reason why I have that list of awards is because my students are awesome and I can write about them, but it's that task of writing. And the reason why I do these, these applications is because I try to challenge myself in writing. We ask our students, as a high school teacher especially, we ask our students to write personal statements, to apply to colleges, and sometimes on the fly, to do these scholarship applications, fill out four to five essays. And if we cannot challenge ourselves to do the same thing year after year and keep ourselves competitive and motivated and pushing boundaries, then we are not showing them how to be a model. Hmm. So that's why I enjoy writing what I do. So in effect, that whole list is sort of a, um, an, a set of artifacts of your own growth mindset. For sure, and it's a love letter to my students. You know, I, I always write about them. I love their passions, I love their interests, and I, I think that where they go in life is, is amazing. Yeah. yeah. And one of the privileges of being a high school teacher is that you get to keep track and stay in touch with your students after they graduate. Mm -hmm. For me, that's been a very rewarding thing over the years yeah. to have those students stay in touch with me. Awesome. So, okay, so question number nine. Um, in Hawaii's uh, public school September newsletter, you wrote, and I quote, the school year marks the inaugural year of full next generation science standards, otherwise known as NGSS. Um, implementation for Hawaii. As a science teacher and parent, um, you wrote, I have a hard time containing my excitement. I love that phrase. These standards not only elevate the rigor of scientific inquiry in the classroom, but they acknowledge both indigenous and Western science practices, incorporate greater science literacy, and expand our definition of engineering. So let's unpack this a little bit. So what gets you so excited about all this, and what does it mean for kids in the classroom? And by the way, there's another part to that question, which is, I'm not sure, what is, not, what is a novel science experience? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. I think that my perspectives have changed slightly on NGSS since I've written that article. I still believe that NGSS has been better than the other science standards that have been out there in the past, but I've also watched it play out in the classrooms, both as a teacher and as a parent. And I'm not there yet. I thought I was there, and I, when I read the standards, I was really jazzed about them, but I'm not there yet anymore. Okay. And I think that I have the capacity to kind of retract some words. Okay. But NGSS was meant to be open and broad and provide experiences so students could go take deep dives into science learning. And we need to empower our teachers to do actually that, not just put a label over old standards and call it new. Mm. We are not there yet. And whether it's the professional development that hasn't been really played out well in certain areas, 
or it's just teachers' discomfort with these rigorous standards, we need to be better. I, I too need to be better. I always revamp my, my lessons with NGSS. I think, well, my students didn't really take a deep dive into that concept. Mm. And so we have to revisit it. But then also, you know, we're, we're tied. And our, as a biology teacher, I'm handcuffed to these tests that are coming up. I have no idea what this test is going to look like at the end of the year. Should I care? Probably not. Do I care? Yeah, because it's tied to my teacher evaluations. So I'm, I'm not there. Mm-hmm. As a parent, when I read these standards for elementary, I was super excited. I was saying, my, student, my kids are going to learn science. And they're coming home with just very, a great science, nice science. Mm-hmm. Not the engineering that I would expect. And not the, not the diversity lens that I would expect. I'm, I try so hard in my classes to stop talking about old white men. Mm. I try so hard. And I wish people would try harder too. I had an extraordinary interview with the Vice President for Strategy and Innovation at Chaminade University. Her name is Helen Turner. And she's done quite remarkable work in developing a sort of 360 approach to science, meaning a much more diverse group of people who are applying their minds and their technical skills um, to science issues. So you get, when you have people from many different cultures of all different varieties applying themselves to certain science issues, you get, uh, you get the opportunity to move away from the old white men approach mm-hmm. to science. And for her, this has been a, a very much a, a North Star a guiding light. It sounds like that's kind of what you're thinking about as well. For sure. I always have to ask myself, who, what science, when I teach science, who am I serving? Mm. And what data informs this science that I serve to others? And if your students are developing artifacts of learning, it's them. It's not it them that. reacting to a test. It's actually them presenting something about themselves. Mm-hmm. And then we really start to make progress. Yes, which is why I love talking about I don't love talking about it, but I love researching disease when it comes to humans in science. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. I think it's so multifaceted and it's not just genetic and we can't just focus on one thing or another to explain certain phenomena that happen, but that we can pull in social sciences Mm -hmm. and humanities into our science. And that is really what strikes me as the novel science approach. Great, got it, cool. Okay, so Whitney, we're at question number 10. We've made it to the end of the questions. Um, So here's question number 10. So typically I ask all guests to answer the same question, um, which is what could school be? But this time, I'm gonna ask you to answer that question in a slightly different and self-serving way. So Whitney, what keeps me, in all seriousness, what keeps me awake at night, what keeps me working on this podcast and all of my education projects is the idea that thousands of our K-12 students are sitting in class bored out of their minds, disliking or even hating learning and hating school. So I need you to convince me in this moment here um, that all across Hawaii, this is increasingly not the case. Um, Am I right in publicly stating over and over again and tweeting about it and putting it up on Facebook um, that all across Hawaii, student engagement is becoming more and more our top priority? 
Yes, Josh, it is. No, no, don't, <laughs> don't, don't tell me if it's not true. But what, what no. do you really think about that? Are we, are we making progress in that direction? I think we are making progress. I think that with the amount of publicity that education is getting now, and the empowerment that we are receiving from top-down initiatives, we are going to make progress. It's just the start. This is just the tip of the iceberg of how we're going to take control back. We are. We are done with colonialism. We are done with someone telling us what to do and how to think and how to be. We are going to take it on. We're going to do indigenous science. We're going to get kids connected back to their aina, and they're going to be empowered with their own wellness as well. Whitney Aragaki, you are an inspiration to me. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today on this podcast. Mahalo. Welcome back to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. So coming up next week is Justin Brown, STEM and Makerspace educator at Kealakehe High School. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, March 28th. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant and sound engineer is Ryan Ozawa. The editor for this episode was Marlo Nutrera, under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at talkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed. <laughs>